Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, oh, we've got, got a drill. We've got a drill. <laughs> yeah. No, no. <laughs> Start again. Um. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. If we all perform the same, it will be a very boring world. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. 20 feet in the air, door shut. All my concern was the dance floor and the stage. You're lucky that someone's given you a stage. Bloody use it. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. You know, I certainly lose myself in the music, and it's not an act. And I just do what I feel when people like that. It's just honest. And for this episode, he's one of the most iconic DJs of all time. I should have enjoyed it more, but I enjoyed getting up there a lot. Promoters fought to book him. Well, what's worked for me is just doing stuff because I like doing it, you know. Not not because, oh, you think, oh, this is going to make money or this is going to do whatever. He's one of the original superstar DJs. And I remember my driver came with, with a full roast dinner. I'm going, what are you doing? He goes, you need to eat this. <laughs> it's like there's no time to eat except in the car. You the cars dissect me with your blood little <laughs> I feel less that people still really like what you do after all this time, you know. Jeremy Healy, welcome to How To Theater. Howdy doody. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Were you born to DJ, Jeremy? Pretty much, yeah. I actually bought a guitar and then I traded it in for two decks and stuff. It just looked like it made sense. I listened to an interview once where I think it was like Elton John or someone was talking about He just looked at a piano and it sort of made sense to him. I feel the same way about record decks. Yeah, so in a way, yeah, I was about, I don't know, 15, 16 when that happened. I want to go right back to the start, Jeremy. Woolwich, South East London in the 60s. Did you have a happy childhood? A lovely place, yes. Full of terrorists. <laughs> Bombs. It was great, but we were none the wise. We had a nice life. Yeah. Am I right in saying that, that you lived between your parents in Woolwich and your grandparents in Peckham? Me and my sister fought like Tom and Jerry. So my parents, I mean, it got so bad that as soon as the holidays come, they'd split us up. 
So I like to go to uh, Peckham to my nan and granddad's, and that's when I got into reggae and going to cricket and people banging tins together and making music, you know, and like Jamaicans and all that stuff was up in Peckham, and I hadn't seen that before. But, yeah, my granddad used to take me to the cricket because it was like £2 to get in. And it lasted all day, you know. <laughs> was he into music? Yeah, he was really into music. We went to Ireland and he uh, took me round all the pubs and he'd sit me on his knee and sing Danny Boy, like really loud. And I'd be like, oh, it's really loud. And my name's not Danny. And uh, I didn't realise because then after about half an hour, he'd get me up again and take me to the next pub and do the whole bloody thing again. Because everyone had to buy you a pint if you did the song. So he'd get really pissed for nothing. And I was the stooge. <laughs> so you sort of got used to living life by night when you were dead young. Uh, as far as I remember, I mean, I was literally six years old when that happened. But that was in the day, you know, they were drinking in the day. <laughs> so, but um, I never get up before 10 o'clock if I can help it. You know, 10 o'clock's early for me. <laughs> I want to know when you first feel like you got into music. Well, I was seven when I got my first records, and uh, it was a big deal then. You know, records were like a special thing, you know, and it was like I got for Christmas Space Oddity and uh, a Lee Perry Return to Django record. And they were my first two records. I don't know why me and my sister chose them, but that's what we did. And they were the first records. And I just thought they were, you know, I learned the B side, the A, you know, learned everything, all the bits, all the chords, everything. Very credible. Well, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I think my sister went on to Donny Osmond after that and some other not so cool stuff. She liked Stevie Wonder, I remember that. But I really liked... T-Rex, you know, and Bowie, you know, that was my first thing. I didn't know about the Beatles or anything like that or the Rolling Stones. I was too young for that. But you were in your late teens in the late 70s. So did you get into punk? Oh, yeah. That was uh, when I met Boy George. He was on a bus. He lived about four streets away from me. And it was basically like anyone who wasn't wearing flares were automatically mates, you know, so we've like met on a bus and we were like, oh, cool, no flares, we're mates, you know. So, yeah, it was us against the world, really, you know. There were probably, you know, like 200 punk rockers and 20,000 people who wanted to beat you up for not looking the same as them. What do you remember about George when you first met him? It was great. He went to this school called Elton Green and all the girls liked him, loved him, and all the boys wanted to beat him up. <laughs> So, because they were jealous, but the girls wouldn't let the boys beat him up. So he was in quite a position of power. It was quite funny. He was quite extraordinary. So, I mean, he looked really good. There was only a few of us, so it gave you a feeling of, like, I don't know, we were so under siege all the time. We ended up running around Elton, <laughs> running away from imaginary threats. <laughs> so how old were you at this time? 14, 15, 15 years old. I think Punk okay. Rock happened when I was 15, and I was a little bit too young. I couldn't get into all the places, you know, but we managed to get into a few places like the Marquee and uh, the Roxy Club and that. We used to get into those places. 
you know, we weren't literally allowed in pubs at that point because you were too young. So I was a little bit young, but I was into it. So were the two of you making plans to pursue careers in music? Oh, well, yeah, it was a dream. I mean, it's a sort of polar opposite now with all these awful talent contests and things where people say, oh, yeah, you know, you're fabulous. We had the opposite. You know, we were considered uppity. There's no way you're going to make it. You think you're so cool and everything. So we had the opposite of that. And you had to sort of break through. Luckily, one of my mates at school, I only had two friends at school, and one of them actually got into Adam and the Ants and made it onto Top of the Pops when I was like 16 or something, 17. And that gave me the confidence. I was like, hang on a minute, if he can do it, I can definitely do it. You know, So, you know, you needed to break through that belief because it was a myth being a pop star was like a unattainable thing for a normal person whereas people don't feel like that at all now now you get loads of average people being pop stars you made it <laughs> very early actually didn't you yeah in hazy fantasy yeah 82 yep that's right i was 20 yeah i wrote a song i wrote the lyrics to a song and i woke everyone up in the flat that i was staying in and said look i've written this hit song and they were like yeah go back to bed you know <laughs> I, was like, I was like no no this is gonna go this time you know and it did I mean I was really disappointed it wasn't number one it was only like number nine or something I was furious at the time <laughs> did you get on top of the pops I did get on top of the pops there were only two pop shows on tv then there was a Saturday morning one and the top of the pops but the good point about it was once you were on top of the pops Everyone knew who you were, so you were instantly famous all over the UK, which was great. So it was a simpler time. I mean, I used to watch that when I was a kid religiously, you know, and when they call you up to say you've made it onto Top of the Pops, because you had to sell, I don't know, 50,000 before that, so you had to get radio and, you know, there were steps into it. You didn't get just gifted it. But once you'd made it, it was it. Everybody knew who you were and decided if they liked you or they hated you. I think we had a bit of likes and hates, I think. The hit single was John Wayne is Big Leggy. Do you want to know what that means? Everybody asks me. You know, well, I, I want to know what it means and also why you think it was a big hit. Well, because it sounds like a stupid, like childish thing, which it was, because I'm stupid and childish. But I'd read this book called Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee, which was about the Europeans wiping out the Native Americans. And they did it much like the Nazis did with the Jews. They did the same thing to the American Indians. And anyway, I read this book and I was kind of shocked. So I wrote, it was, it was basically like John Wayne, who was a very right-wing guy, and how he's having anal sex with this Indian in a tent. And that's what the record, if you read the lyrics, that's what it is. Okay? Anyway, I wrote this song and it is really funny. And I, I don't know, Robin Williams wrote this letter saying that he thought it was really good and like he really thought it was funny. And I was like, bloody Morecambe Mindy, rubbish. <laughs> I didn't reply to him. And then, you know, he went on to do Goodwill Hunting and you know, a few nice films. So I regretted that. But uh, no, it was really nice. And yeah, it was kind of fun. Uh, and why do you think it was a, a hit single? Well, because it was so off the wall and we had like this amazing look. 
Like now, it's so long ago, 40 years ago, I'm looking back at that and, I, you know, it doesn't even feel to me like it's me, you know, which is really strange because it is that long ago. You know, we had a lot of people who were like copying the way we were dressing and stuff before they'd heard the music or anything. You get that. It was like Bowie, you know, everyone copied Bowie, you know, they didn't necessarily buy his records. How did life change after that? Uh, well, it changed all the time. I mean, we did that and then I broke it up because I wasn't confident enough and I wanted to get hip hop started and I really was into hip hop. And my the other guys in the band were like not so sure about it, but I was pretty sure and I wanted to be a DJ, not because it was a clever thing to be or there was any money in it. I just felt really much more confident being like that. So I got into that. I went into my bedroom, learned how to scratch for like two years, making horrible noises. So it wasn't a career move. It was just something that I felt right doing. I mean, I wanted to have a pirate radio station. I bought a transmit and did all that stuff. What are those guys called? The people just do nothing people? <laughs> I, was, I was like one of them. <laughs> What uh, was the first time you got paid to DJ? Philip Salon paid me 20 quid to DJ. I was 16. I wasn't meant to be even in the club. Actually, it was me and George. I think the first week, George DJed and I did the coat check and I ended up with a pile of coats and people screaming at me. I wasn't very organised in that way. And then the next week, George said, oh, I'll do the coat check because he wanted to rob everyone from their money and their coats. So, so, so I got to DJ and then he never got the gig back because I loved it, you know. He probably made more money on the night than you did. He definitely did. He also nearly got good hiding as well from people. Amazing times in London then, Jeremy. You mentioned Philip Salon. There were a lot of big characters around, weren't there? I mean, something used to happen every year or so then, you know. Things moved much faster then. Because we had punk rock, we had the sort of goth thing, we had the Blitzkid thing, you know, New Romantic, and then it went into hip-hop, and then we had house music. And that's all in the space of seven years, you know, or ten years, let's say. you know. But that's a lot. There was always something new on the horizon, really. And was it just a great, fantastic buzz? Yeah, I think, you know, when you're young, you just take everything for granted. You're like, yeah, 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 I'm fabulous. This is fabulous. You know, everything's, you know, you just like that. You're just rolling all the time and you expect it. Yeah, and you were really becoming more integral as part of this scene that I suppose you've talked about all the different movements but you were sort of, without perhaps realising, starting a, a new scene, part of your own scene, that you were, as it turned out, right at the centre of. What do you mean, the house music thing? Yeah, and I think your emergence as a DJ. Well, yeah, but before then, I'd had my own illegal warehouse clubs and all that. I was doing that, with not with house music. I mean, there was a few things. Rhythm is Rhythm was out. I remember that came out in, like, 1985. So there was house music. But it wasn't like all house. And, uh, you know, I had my own warehouse. As I said, I had my own proto radio station and everything. So I was into that. But then when the house music, it sort of changed because everything was like James Brown, funk, public enemy and all that. And then 
Rampling and, and Oakenfold came along and they were playing all the Balearic stuff because they'd been to Ibiza. And that really changed it because then you could play Frankie Goes to Hollywood and U2 and, you know, like lots of alternative stuff, whereas before it was like really just funk music or hip-hop, you know. So that really changed it and it made it much more inclusive. And it was something that you could do. I loved hip-hop, but I went to New York. I went and lived there for three months, and I was hanging out with the Beastie Boys and, you know, the early Def Jam people, and I loved it. But it was always like you and this white guy from London, you know, so it wasn't our scene. I mean, I could have ingratiated myself into it if I tried hard enough, but I did a bit, but... When the house music came, it was just at the right time, really. You know, it's just, it was like you're old enough to understand it. And I was talking to Danny Rampling about it. And, you know, we all felt the same thing at the same time. There was only 200 people into it when we got into it. But we knew it was going to be massive. You just did. You just knew. Same as the way I knew hip hop was going to be massive. You know, you just know. It's just obvious. The first time we went to Shum, I was with George again. And uh, the bouncers wouldn't let us in because they said, oh, we can't protect you. <laughs> like, what? Said, yeah, 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 there's all these football hooligans there from West Ham. They're going to beat you up. <laughs> like, no, they're not. <laughs> there are different theories, Jeremy, aren't there, about where house music sort of got huge, whether it was at the Hacienda or in London. I think the Hacienda had more people into it you know, but they were coming out of New Order and all that stuff, you know, that sort of indie, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I went to the Hacienda. It was more like a gig venue then. It was more like live bands and stuff like that. But these things, you know, they all flowered at the same time, you know, and they all encouraged each other. I mean, that's what you almost forget it before it became an industry. It was all these individual people and they were actually helping each other as a scene, you know. They were actually helping each other. They weren't like, oh, you can't play here if you play here and do, you know. And, and when the people like Ministry of Sound and Cream took over, it became rivalry and they tried to fuck each other over. And, they, you know, whereas before that, everyone used to help each other, you know, and that's what made it grow. You had Circus, didn't you? And that became one of the biggest, most successful nights in London, I would say possibly ever. Well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I wouldn't say that at all. At the time, it got giant. I mean, it got from 200 people to 2,000 people in the space of about six months. But, yeah, it was terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying how quickly it got. That was before house music. That was like when we were playing funk and hip hop and, you know, but it was the same sort of idea. Yeah. But uh, that ended really, really badly because people, they saw there was all this money changing hands and then all these gangsters come down and tried to rob me and it was awful. Ended up in the bloody police station and in court. Literally, it was awful. Is it possible, do you think, Jeremy, to define and pinpoint when club culture was born? No, because everyone thinks they've come up with something, you know, with the birth of it. I mean, you can say there's certain marker points, but it's been going forever, you know. I'm sure, you know, if you go back to the 1920s and the speakeasies and all that, it's the same thing, really, you know. When do you think you first felt really famous as a DJ? 
I'll tell you what, I remember it quite well. I was DJing at this place called Leeds Corn Exchange, which is a great big circular Victorian building. It's like a great big dome. So I ended up playing the main bit. And um, you too had sent me an acetate. Do you remember an acetate? Do you remember them? Yeah. They used to send you like a test pressing. Anyway, I got this one from you too. I think it was lemon. Yeah, which was open folds mix. Anyway. I thought, oh, normally I wouldn't put it on because I didn't have time to hear it. I just grabbed it and ran up the door and got to Leeds and, you know. And then at the end of the gig, I was like, bollocks, I'm going to put this on. <laughs> I'm sure it's good. So I put it on and then I thought, oh, this is brilliant. So I ran down the stairs to go and listen to it in the middle of the sound system and everyone turned, was watching me and I was like, I was only just running down the stairs. I wasn't even thinking about anything. And I realized, oh, look, everyone's looking at me. I didn't really actually realise, you know, before that. And that was kind of my moment going, okay, <laughs> that's a bit different. <laughs> You're a showman, aren't you? Is that part of what people loved about you, Dad? I'm a show-off man. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm, I'm just really unselfconscious. You know, I certainly lose myself in the music, and it's not an act. And I just do what I feel. And, you know, I think people like that. It's just honest. At the height of it all, promoters were battling to book you. You you were, I think, without doubt, the world's biggest DJ. That must have been incredible. I've had my moments. <laughs> Amazing, really, you know, to think that. Yeah, I remember a couple of things. But I actually didn't enjoy it that much. I felt the pressure too much, you know. I actually enjoy being one of the middle guys now, you know, so, yeah, no, it's just there's no pressure now. There was a lot of pressure before. There was a lot of time. There was a lot of, you know, what are you going to do, you know. I should have enjoyed it more, but I enjoyed getting up there a lot. Can you describe a typical week at the very height of all of that? I remember some just crazy, I mean, I remember I had a full-time driver stroke road manager now, but... Uh, we were doing something like 1,800 miles a week every week, all around. Uh, you know, we'd go out on Wednesday, come back Sunday night and sleep Monday and Tuesday and then go out on Wednesday again. And I remember my driver came with a full roast dinner. I'm going, what are you doing? He goes, you need to eat this. <laughs> you know, he brought around a dinner for me. There was no time to eat except in the car, you know. But he brought me around like everything and gravy and everything. I'm going to fucking eat this in the car. <laughs> Did you enjoy all the adulation? I still do. <laughs> you can't get enough. No, it's nice. It's um, I have a nice level of that because I can step into it and then step away from it because in the street, you know, nobody knows me or anything, so it's nice. There's telly famous, you know, which isn't so nice because then you just get random people coming at you for no reason other than you've been on television. Whereas the DJ's fame was because people actually really liked what you did, you know, and it was a more genuine type of fandom, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. Before heading into the box of questions here, Jeremy, John Galliano, that was kind of a pivotal time for you, wasn't it, meeting him and working with him? Yeah, but again, a completely sort of random set of circumstances come to that. Yeah, he'd been to my club, he'd been to the circus, and I went to his, 
he did a degree show at St. Martin's and my girlfriend was modelling in it and she said, oh, you've got to see this guy, he's great. I was like, no, 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 I only like Vivian Westman, Malcolm Clare, I don't like any other fashion designers. She was like, you've got to come and see this. So I went to his degree show and uh, she came down the catwalk and she had clogs on and a tree in her hair and dead mackerel. And they were throwing the mackerel at the crowd. Right? And I was like, oh, my God, this is so mad. Right? It was just like, what is this? And then he came up to me after the show. And he said, you know, I know you are. I know, you know, I've been to your clubs. I love what you do. You work with me. And that was like 36 years ago. And we've worked together ever since, you know. So, again, I was signed to a record label going, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing it? And I was like, I don't know, but I like it, you know. In the 2000s, I almost stopped DJing just to do Dior and do, to do the fashion shows. You know, there was so much going on with that company and everything that it almost took over my life. But actually, you know, we're talking about this, how do you become a DJ? It's like, well, what's worked for me is just doing stuff because I like doing it, you know, not because, oh, you think, oh, this is going to make money or this is going to do whatever. Do something because you love it and you'll be really good at it. Do you think you've always found it easy? Um, I kind of do now because I've been doing it for so long. But um, no, there's no, no, actually, you're right. The first time you do it, it's bloody terrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying, you know. I've rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, you know, like so I knew exactly what I was going to do. I mean, there's different dimensions now. We've got all this uh, key matching and doing all that, and I do all that stuff now, you know, which I really like, because I like to play a couple of records at the same time, one on top of each other. And if they're in key, it helps. <laughs> Jeremy, time to head into the box of questions here. Five picks from 45 from you in this record box. All the questions are on 45, Steve's. I'll dip in, you just say when. I'll pull one out. When? What is a superstar DJ? Someone who gets paid more than me. <laughs> you must have been paid the most it's possible to be paid as a DJ. At the time, at the time. I mean, everything doubles every year, you know, so. But I remember when we started getting paid the money, everybody was sort of shocked at that. You know, I don't care about money anyway. It's, it's fun. If you've got enough, you know, enough is enough. It's not the end goal. What about all the acclaim that comes with it? Look, everybody loves being praised, don't they? That's human nature. So, yes, it's lovely. <laughs> What's the best thing anyone's ever said about you? What's the best thing anyone's ever written about you? Oh, that's personal. <laughs> don't get all sexual. <laughs> don't get sexual. I was me in a magazine Jesus. or newspaper. <laughs> uh, I don't know. People say nice things all the time. Yeah, I'm not surprised. One of the funniest things that ever happened to me DJing was I was DJing at, do you know the London Planetarium? Yeah. Okay, so the London Planetarium is to do with Madame Tussauds. So I'm, we're doing a party there. There's a waxwork of Patrick Moore, the, yeah, you know Patrick Moore, life-size. The astronomer. Yes, exactly. So I'm DJing and one of the guys who's organised the party comes running up to me with Patrick Moore's head, right? And somebody has gone and whacked it like, and knocked the head off the waxwork. And he's going, 
quick, hide this. Otherwise, if they find out, they'll stop the party, right? So I've got Patrick Moore's head and I'm trying to ram it into my record box to keep it in the record box. And he's looking up at me when I'm DJing. That was quite funny. That was one of the stupidest things ever happened to me. Whatever happened to that head? Well, luckily enough, they make them separate to the bodies. That's why it came clean off, and they could stick it back on afterwards. But, you know, we managed to get through the party and save the day. But, yeah, I mean, I've had bras and pants and everything, but Patrick Moore's head's, like, pretty up there. That wasn't even the answer to the question, was it? No. Uh, the original question was, um, what is a superstar DJ? Viva the questions. Viva the <laughs> How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. When that happened, I was like, I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> And I know that's a smarmy thing to say, but, yeah, you know, I have so much fun. Back into the box, Jeremy, for another question. Right, when, when? He's only got three records there. <laughs> What's the most famous you've ever felt? Uh, I've had some embarrassing time. I remember going to a restaurant once, and this a very posh restaurant, and uh, this guy was like, Oh, it's so glad you're here and everything. And I was like, he thinks I'm someone else. Like I had imposter syndrome. And I was with a girl and I was on my first date. And I was like, really, you know, I thought, oh, this is, oh no, it could go really badly wrong. He's going to say the wrong name. <laughs> but it did, it was me. And that's when I felt really special. You know, when you get looked up, when you get the best table in the house for no reason. Do you think you've been good at being famous through the years? Uh, I'm not that famous, you know. I'm really not that famous. I'm famous in a nice way, you know. It's not, there's people, you know, like my friend Galliano, you can really screw with people, this fame thing, when you go really bad, when you get it all the time, when you're walking around the streets and everyone is whispering or trying to get your picture. I don't have that problem. <laughs> I don't, everyone leaves me alone. I can go to Sainsbury's. Anytime I like, you know. So there's a level of fame where it becomes toxic for pretty much everyone. So I haven't reached that. <laughs> Do you enjoy being adored when you're on stage? Uh, I remember I was doing a gig about a year ago in Manchester and I was playing with Happy Mondays and Kate Class and Graham Park and everything. And I had to go on. And Happy Mondays were actually really good. I was really surprised the sound was... They were really sounding well. And I remember I was like, oh, I've got to go on after this group. And there's like eight of them. And there's just me, you know. And I was on the side. And then the DJ's bits were on the side. And they were like, they played. And then they said, you know, just start. And I was like, yeah, I want to just get going. Because you just want to get on as soon as you can and get it moving. You know, it's the bit before you're all like, Ugh. So I started playing. And because it's CDJs, it's like we can pick them up and move them. So they picked him up as I was playing and moved it to the middle of the stage. And I was like, I'm home, you know. So, you know, that's when I felt really comfortable. And I never really thought about it before. But on the side of the stage, I was the small man, you know, with the little ideas. But when you're in the middle of the stage, it's a bit, you know, I, I enjoy being in the middle of the stage. I'm very comfortable there. <laughs> You mentioned Parky there. Who are your favourite DJs? Parrock. 
Graham Barrack. Superb. I always rip the piss out of Graham. It's like, my name's Graham Barrack. It's not Graham Barrack. It's Graham Barrack. Okay. So um, <laughs> I always say, uh, you know, like Danny Ramplin was the first one who had people sort of cheering him, you know. And when that happened, I was like, I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> I can bloody do that. And you did. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, yes, yes. Um, yeah, he was the first person. I mean, Shum, they just had a really good broad selection of music, you know, that was really inspiring, and that was very special. And Oki was good. They used to play Pink Floyd, you know, when it's really uncool, you know. But I think all the best music, it's like I used to – I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but I used to play Michael Jackson, and that was considered really uncool for a while. I mean, it, it's just part of the firmament now. Nirvana I used to play before they got big, and it was like, oh, you can't play that, you know? And I was like, it's fucking great. I can play what I want. And um, so, you know, I think, I don't know, Norman Cook, I think he's great. I think he's, really, he's made some fab records. Um who else? I mean, everyone has a good moment. I was talking, I'll do my DJ name dropping. I bumped into Danny Tanaglia at a festival because what's nice now in the summer is you get to spend time with people and everything, you know, and uh, especially date like Dave Murray, all the old people, they're all my age. Actually, Danny Tanaglia is older than me. <laughs> but yeah, it's nice to sort of catch up with everyone. <laughs> you having a good time there, are you? You having fun? <laughs> I'm, loving it. I'm loving it. I can't believe I'm here with you, you Jeremy Healy. Uh, back into the boat for the next question, Jeremy. So, uh... <laughs> oh, God, he loves the sound of his own voice. <laughs> Say when? Is your back gone again? His back's gone again. I'm just going to pull <laughs> one out. He's given up on me. You're having this one. Have you ever felt euphoric? I feel euphoric all the time. I'm feeling quite euphoric now. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. I'm feeling a bit euphoric myself. <laughs> Do you feel euphoric when you're DJing? Absolutely, yes. I did on Saturday anyway. Sometimes I'm just really, you know, like, depressed and <laughs> try, try and ruin everyone's night. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm a pretty happy camper, I am, to be honest. Yeah. You know, when all the superstar DJ things sort of really was huge for the first time, what about a feeling of euphoria, say, in Ibiza? Um, I mean, Ibiza's, yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah, I don't, what do you mean? I don't think it makes any difference where it is. I mean, that, that a club's a club, a disco's a disco, a disco could be anywhere. I was actually DJing on the top of this boat at early summer in Ibiza, and I thought I was on this massive club and it was only a little boat. <laughs> I was like, this is really good. <laughs> Do you like Ibiza? Uh, yeah, I have a love and hate relationship with it. I have a good time there. I mean, it's nice that people come together and you're bumping into people from all over the world and, you know, there's, there's that stuff. You know, it's an international place. But I don't like the sort of uh, industrial size clubbing events. I'm not that happy with the way it's gone. But there's nothing you can do about that. 
What do you think's the best venue ever? I mean, I like open air places, you know, if you can, if you don't get it shut down by the police, you know, the open air's like where it's at, really. So there's an amazing uh, natural amphitheatre in Perth in Australia, which has got to go down as one of the most spectacular places. But, you know, no one's been there because it's miles away. <laughs> <laughs> Back into the box, Jeremy, for question four for you. Same way. Stop trying to put me in the box. I don't want to put you in the box. <laughs> Nobody puts Jeremy in a box. Go on, that one. Lovely. Uh, how much planning goes into your sets? Um, well, I have to apply to the council. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always apply to the council <laughs> to plan my sets, yes. Um well, actually, what I'm doing at the moment, after I finish talking with you, I do a radio show of two hours a week, and I started doing it during lockdown because I was like, I've got to keep interested, you know? And we thought lockdown was going to be three weeks, you know, or three months, at the mu you know? So it just kept my eye in. But uh, for that radio show, which is two hours, 28 records, it will take me about five hours to put it together. Wow. So, yeah, quite a lot. And I have to do that every week. Yeah. But if I don't do it, I'm not happy with the show, you know. But that's because I have completely different sets every week. Whereas in a club, it's like, you know, you've got the records, you know the records that are going to drive people nuts, and then you evolve it. You don't throw it all away. You just evolve it. What are the best records for you to drive people nuts with? Well, you know, you can make mashups, you know, so that nobody else has got your stuff. I mean, I did one uh, last year with Foo Fighters and um, Nightmare by Brainbug, yeah, which really gets people going ballistic. <laughs> What's your favourite set opener? If you were to say that there was one that you'd played more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, you do. You get sort of known for um, certain things and people uh, demand to hear them. You know, they're like, you're going to play that? You're going to do that? You know, that's the great thing about being a DJ. That's why I preferred it to being in a band, which you're not stuck with a catalogue. You can keep moving it on. See, I, I avoided answering that question, didn't I? <laughs> I should be a politician. I know, I was thinking you sort of were going to get there, but yeah, uh, go on, name one song, go on. Now we've gone back down the road. Come on, Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> Very helpful. <laughs> All right, final question from the box. You can't dissect me with your blood little tools. <laughs> I think I'm going to give up trying. <laughs> a final question from you. the box. It's Jeremy. not worth it. It's one, not worth it. Jeremy, one last question from the box, please. Last question. Let me out of the box. Get me out of the box. I'm pulling one out for you here. Dennis Waterman. When and where is the greatest night of your DJing life? Dennis Waterman. When and where was the... <laughs> When and where was the greatest night of your DJing life? Well, that's impossible. It's always the next one. I know that's a smarmy thing to say, but yeah, you know, I have so much fun. I had just as much fun last Saturday as I did 30 years ago. You know, I really did, you know, and, and that is the answer to that because it's always the next gig. And, you know, I feel blessed that people still really like what you do after all this time, you know. 
and really genuinely like it, not just like, I remember. It's not about <laughs> nostalgia, it's about now. Being such a lovely guy must have helped with longevity, don't you think? Oh, well, I never used to be that nice. <laughs> Were you not? Good dose of failure helps everyone. <laughs> Were you not always a nice guy? I think um, we touched on it earlier. Is like when you're at the top, there's a lot of pressure and you can get lost in that for a while. You know, when I was in a group, you know, in the 80s, and we were going all over the world. I'd never been all over the world. It was amazing, but we never got to see anything. And I was like, when I started DJing all over the world, it was like, okay, I'm going to go here for a week. You know, that was it. It was a lovely way to see the world. It's fantastic, you know. But what do you mean by well, the, the question was, um, were you not always a nice guy? Viva ask the questions. <laughs> Viva ask the questions. <laughs> When were you not a nice guy? Oh, dear. I don't know what I'm on about today. I'm not on drugs, I promise you. Not yet. <laughs> Are you going to answer that question or not? What's it like being a nice guy? What a no, that wasn't, that wasn't the question, was it? Oh, the question was, it? was, was there a time when you, now looking back perhaps, um, think that actually you weren't the best version of yourself? Of course, I'm not the best version of myself two hours ago. <laughs> I was like pretty grumpy. I'm all right now, though. <laughs> Jeremy, um, they were your five On that note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were your five questions from the box. I've got one last question for you. God help me. It's the end of the world, uh, and you, Jeremy Healy, have to play the last three records on earth. What would those records be? Jeff Wayne's The End of the World. War of the Worlds. Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start. Da, 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 da. What? The, it's the end of the world. Um, help by the Beatles. <laughs> and one more. That was a really stupid one. But it's still the end of the world. But there's no, it's, it's finished now. The world's over. You've got three back time to the end of the world. Um, one more. What are you going to go out with? Uh, I'm, just, I'm thinking of a really sad one. <laughs> Um, that Nirvana one, something in the way, really depressing. <laughs> All right, fabulous, uh, Jeremy. I I think I've loved this. Thank you so much. I think it was interesting. You know, kicked some shit around, man. You know, Jeremy, wasn't your average. You know, no, it really it, that it definitely wasn't. Jeremy Healy, uh, that was how to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. And if you think that that's going to teach you anything about how to DJ, you're very much mistaken. <laughs>